Hello and welcome to episode three of NAMT Radio. I'm your host, Rob Lawrence, and today we're going to talk about the 2022 EMS Worker Engagement Survey, amongst other things. And to help me do that are two NAMT members that we all know. Uh, One is the immediate past president, or you know the immediate past past president. There we go, the IPPP president. And the other one, of course, is uh, the chief of uh, Austin Travis County. So welcome, Rob Lockritz, and welcome, Matt Zavansky. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. And Rob, um, Rob Lawrence, I'm sure that between Rob Lukritz and I both will be able to figure out what it is that you're actually saying because of your speech impediment. And ladies and gentlemen, if you've never heard <laughs> Matt and I on a podcast before, this is the standard banter, ladies and gentlemen, of NAMT you're about to get. What um, am I but, doing? But don't forget, Matt, you're outnumbered by Rob L's today. So let's That's just right. remember that, right? So uh, Matt, as you've as you've hogged the mic already, just introduce yourself, your position, and uh, what you're up to these days. Sure. Matt Zavatsky with MedStar in Fort Worth, uh, Chief Transformation <laughs> Officer and Director at Large for NAEMT. And honestly, the way that I have longevity in this profession <laughs> is I do whatever Rob Lukert says I should do. All right, Rob Lukeritz, what have you told him to do this week? But after only after you've introduced yourself. <laughs> uh, Rob Lukeritz, I'm the uh, chief of Austin Travis County EMS and the uh, treasurer for NAEMT. And I'm not so sure what uh, Matt's talking about because he's someone that's uh, pointed me in directions many, many a times over the years. Indeed, Matt is the man behind the EMS curtain, ladies and gentlemen. Don't forget that. We are going to discuss today the 2022 EMS Worker Engagement Survey. Uh, it's had some big results Perhaps things we perhaps already knew, but of course the survey just confirms that. But uh, Rob Luckeritz, your committee was responsible for this, and obviously you led and directed that effort. So just set this whole survey up for us, please. Sure. So you know, last year when we were kind of talking through what the the purpose and the goals of the EMS Workforce Committee was going to be, we looked at uh, where we could make the, the biggest impact. We've talked a lot as a committee about uh, mental health resiliency and other issues that have faced our profession over the years. But with everything that's gone on in the COVID-19 pandemic and all the work we did um, around the workforce there, I think it was a realization that we need to un- better understand what's going on in our workforce and what the reason is that folks are either leaving the profession or, or how they're feeling. Um, we did some research and we started trying to understand where that data is located. And the AAA, the American Ambulance Association, did a really great job with their Newton 360 um, survey a few years ago, um, really kind of polling the um, employers to ask them, why are your employees leaving? And what we wanted to do was just a little bit of a spin on that, given that NAMT is uh, so focused on the frontline providers themselves and not the, the employers. Let's reach out to the EMS workforce directly and say, you know, are you thinking about leaving? And if so, why? And if not, why are you staying? And that's what the kind of the impetus of this whole process was. And we went so far as to even say, let's ask a question that says, are you a manager or a supervisor? And if the answer is yes, the the immediate answer was, thank you very much, but you're not the the individual we're targeting. Um, So that we could truly get that frontline result of what are they, what are they thinking about what's going on in the workforce? I think that's a critical point, Rob, that, uh, you know, when, when a lot of other organisations do surveys, it's the leader that's giving the answer, but uh, we want them to speak to the, the guy on the on the truck, as it were. Um, so you both wrote a very good article, which really summarised this well over on EMS One, and uh, it was called the EMS Workforce Critical Condition. And in addition to the report for the show notes on EMS Radio, we're going to put that uh, on a, as a link in the show notes. 
you made five key points, and uh, I'll, I'll stay with you, Rob, then we'll go to Matt. But uh, the first point, and I'm not sure if these were in ascending or descending order, but you said, based on the survey results, we stink at communicating effectively with our workforce. Why? Yeah, I, and I think um, you know, there's there's so many things to unpack here in terms of how it is that we communicate. You know, with a distributed workforce um, in, in many of our agencies, and and how much face time individuals are getting with their their supervisors and their leaders, it's not surprising that only 32% of respondents felt that they were getting clear and consistent information from their leaders. And 48% said that they felt either they strongly disagreed or disagreed about getting clear guidance. And so, um, you know, it's important for us as we look at what our, um, how it is that we address this, that we find ways that we're able to make sure that we're getting out to our employees, we're getting out to all of our employees and giving them the message they need, whether it's audio, like these podcasts or video, or just a hands-on touch of, of acknowledging it. And I think so critically that it's not just the people that we know or the people that we gravitate towards, but as leaders, we have an obligation to make sure that everyone that's in the field is getting our time and attention. One of the one of the best bits of best practice that you talk about actually is the biweekly chat with a chief podcast. And you mentioned podcasts, but uh, you know, how does that work for you? Are you just live? Do you have a list of things you want to talk about? Do you take sort of live feedback? How does how does that work? And how easy is it to actually achieve if somebody else wanted to kind of follow in that particular model? It takes, it takes effort and it takes uh, consistency. And I have a great team that's really uh, ensures that we, we make sure we get it scheduled, we get it fit in. Um, we do it a couple different ways. I take feedback from my assistant chiefs in terms of what are they working on? What, what do I need messaging? Do I need to get out? Um, and uh, I think more importantly is we try to do a regular ask me anything. And, and that means literally anything. And if, if staff want to ask me questions about what kind of dog I'm planning to get, that's the question I'm going to answer. If they want to know tough questions about pay and benefits, we need to answer those. Um, I literally will not reject any question that my staff ask me um, and, and know that it's important to them um, if they ask the question. And so, so I think that's critical. Don't just give the answers that you want to get out. Find out what the staff want to hear and get that answers to them. I'm going to throw one in, if I may, as well, uh, from my time back in uh, Richmond, uh, oh, 10, 11 years ago. We had a town hall meeting, and we all like a good town hall meeting. And uh, one of the complaints and criticisms was exactly that. Nobody tells us what's going on. And I said, okay, then, for one week, we will produce a piece of news, a piece of information each day. And the way that we did it was we put it on a PowerPoint slide um, because IT wouldn't allow me to send it around. So we actually printed them and put them at various points around the, the campus that had a couple of photographs and three paragraphs of news and information. It was very easy to produce. And we said, okay, we'll do that for a week. It's now past 10 years and it's produced every day, every working day. And it's called the word on the street. And if you look at RAA, you can see how they do that. And again, it doesn't, as it does say, it doesn't take much, but actually it's communicating. Matt, I mean, you are the master communicator, from, and particularly internal communications. I mean, how are you handling it in your shop? So we do town hall meetings uh, quarterly in, in a bunch of different ways. But here's what's more important. Uh, well, and, and Rob does a great job with his with his program. And I think we, we do that. I think what we do pretty effectively, and I do this personally with the folks, and a lot of our senior management team does as well, is going out into the field and you know stopping in post locations, sitting out at the hospital, going into the employees' environment. Uh, you know, I worked a street shift on an ambulance this past Monday. And I can tell you that I learned more 
by talking to the EMTs and paramedics that I don't get to just sit down with while we're doing paperwork or doing charts at, I say paperwork, but that's old school, doing computer charting in the EMS rooms at the hospital, helping them clean the back of their truck after a call. It's amazing what you will learn from your workforce when they are comfortable in their environment. They're not going to come to your office. They're not even going to speak up in a town hall meeting, perhaps. But when you're sitting across the stretcher from them for 10 or 15 minutes, just having a chat, uh, they will tell you amazing things that you can act upon. Take notes, show them that you're taking notes, um, and then give them feedback on on what suggestions they had, what concerns they had. Um, because it, it's one thing to do a town hall meeting and to, to share information. And, and Rob, I love your word on the street. We've done that uh, several times here as well. But they also want to be heard. And we need to listen. And one of the best ways to listen is to get out in the field or sit in the comm center or work a shift in logistics or in fleet. and Just listen. Um, and I think Matt, too. It's, it's so important, especially in, in large organizations, to make sure that we find the time to do that um, and, and even sometimes to schedule it. I think that's an important tool that, that a lot of senior leaders can use to make sure that it's not just when you're available, but actually book time in your day to get out there, spend time with your crews and, and know what it is you want to talk to them about. Um, and, and when you have a team that, that's able to do that, you can get folks out in a consistent manner and it's not just the day that you have free time. Excellent. And uh, my, my final comment here, and I always do this as a COO, please make sure that your soups turn up for the good stuff as well as the bad stuff. Okay. Because, uh, you know, otherwise when you see that soup vehicle coming along, you're like, oh God, here we go again. So please make sure that's it's well balanced. Matt, you mentioned providing feedback. So your fourth or well, point number four, and I'm going to quote what you said here, we stink of providing feedback to our employees about their performance brackets and their patients, Matt. Yeah, it's the, it's the thing we hear most often here at MedStar and other organizations that I have the chance to work with. <clears throat> and that, to Rob's point, we don't communicate the positive news. We don't communicate the wins. We just started a process. Jeff Jarvis is our new medical director, and, and he is a social media butterfly. And every crew member who gets credentialed, every new paramedic that gets credentialed, um, gets their profile on our social media, both internal and public facing. That's good news. Um, but more importantly, you know, when you get good phone calls, when you have good feedback from the community, from people that you know, making sure that the employee knows that. We have a system here that's called a, a customer relations log. And when we, it's a SharePoint database, <clears throat> when somebody calls, sends an email, um, a carrier pigeon, run into them at a community meeting, whatever, when somebody says, hey, this crew the other day did this and it was amazing, we log it. it. It automatically generates an email to the two, three, four employees who were involved in that that patient contact. It also gets logged so that it can be included in their performance review. So when it comes time for the supervisor to do that performance review, they've got a listing of the good things that, that the employee did and the comments that were made. Doing the same thing with EMS survey team, we use their uh, outside uh, um, patient experience surveying group called EMS survey team. And when we get those reports every month, a lot of the reports, the surveys come back with comments. Okay, so we take the positive comments and we do something with the negative ones as well as a follow-up, but take the positive comments, find out who the crew was, send them the report and say, hey, congratulations, here's what your patient said about you. Make sure that's logged so that when the, it's time for their performance re review, that's included. And then on the patient side, 
if you don't have a process like ESO does and, and other organizations, other EPCRs, where the crews can get outcome data on their patients, try and figure out a way that a crew can easily find out, hey, what's that STEMI patient? Were they discharged? Were they okay? Um, hey, the patient that had the acute abdomen that I thought was BS, well, did they get discharged from the ER? Did they get admitted? Because that helps reinforce for the for the field staff that we are part of the house of medicine and that they want to know, were they right? Were they wrong? Um, what was the outcome of the patient? Just because it's, it's curious. We had a case just this past weekend where a, a motorcycle crash victim came and stopped by. The, the crew member was here because he wanted to thank the crew member for saving his life. And he lost his leg in the motorcycle crash, but he was so thankful that he was alive. He just wanted to come and thank them. And, and touting those experiences and logging them so that they're remembered during performance reviews is really, really important. Hey, I'm Makara Trusty. I am not only an NAEMT member, I'm also a, a member of the Lighthouse Leadership Committee. And I would like to talk to you about the MHRO course. NAEMT, with support from FirstNet, built with AT&T, has developed a course to assist EMS agencies in building and supporting the mental health resilience of their personnel. The Mental Health Resilience Officer, or MHRO, course prepares EMS personnel to serve as their agency's mental health resilience officer. In this role, the MHRO will engage with peers to develop an understanding of mental health issues and resilience, identify peers who are experiencing mental health stressors and crises, navigate peers in need to the right services for help, and support the development of a culture of mental health resilience and emotional wellness within the agency. Available online and in a classroom format. And when your agency signs up for NAEMT membership, they will receive free access to this critically important course. For more details, contact membership at naemt.org or follow the links in the show notes. Wonderful. Before I come on to the next point, I just need to say that uh, NAMT Radio is available wherever you get your podcasts. To name but a few, we are currently on Spotify, Amazon Music, Samsung Podcasts, and iHeartRadio. So if you're enjoying the show, please take a moment to rate and review us on the platform that you're listening to us on. If you have a comment, get in touch via our email address. We have an email here as well at naemtradio at naemt.org. That's a tongue twister for you, if you can remember that. Moving on, and uh, I'm talking to two leaders in EMS that actually have different, slightly different funding and payment models um, and one of the big surveys, and it's and it's the theme of the year pretty much across the nation of EMS, but we don't pay our people enough. Uh, Matt, I'll let you lead off and then Rob come in after. Yeah, and, and the competition for the workforce that works for EMS is fierce. You've got hospitals recruiting EMTs and paramedics. You've got Amazon recruiting EMTs and paramedics. You've got uh, Arby's recruiting. Uh, but here's the reality. We are not funded well enough, either through tax dollars, fee-for-service, you name it. The economic model for EMS sucks. And therefore, it's difficult for us to pay people what they're worth to have them stay with our organizations, make it a career. We have got to fix the economic model for EMS so that we can pay people what they're worth. 
And, you know, I, I do some part-time work with a couple of consulting firms and there are so many communities that are, are crying for a solution because they, their turnover is high, even in fire services. And, and Rob, you may see this in, in the Austin area, but we've got fire departments here um, that are offering $10,000, sign-on bonuses for firefighter paramedics. There was just a fire department in Southern California that announced two weeks ago a $100,000 sign-on bonus for firefighter paramedics. And, and we can't, nobody can afford that. So we have to figure out a way to have enough revenue come into agencies where we can pay people what they're worth, make it a career, help them stay, not leave to go to work in the hospital, and, and just really show them that we value their contribution to the services that they provide in the community. And Matt, I mean, I feel like in a lot of ways, we're our own worst enemy in this industry. You know, we consistently see, you know, zero bid contracts and we can do it cheaper and we can do it faster and we can do it, you know, do it for, for again, cheaper. And instead of focusing on the quality and focusing on, you know, coming together as an industry and recognizing that, as you said, the economic model doesn't work. Um, and absent us being able to focus on the benefits that we bring back to the community. It could be in tax dollars. It could be a direct benefit to a municipality. It could be a benefit to a hospital or healthcare system. I mean, there's so many different pieces that we touch out there. Um, and that's what's so great about, you, about EMS, but also so challenging, is that we don't fit in one box. We touch healthcare systems. We talk, touch municipalities. We touch public safety. Um, and when we're looking for the, for, you know, for a place, people are, are happy to support us until we're looking for money, and then it's pointing us in the other direction. And I think we need, as an industry, to stand up and, and recognize that um, the internal competition that we have amongst ourselves sometimes is our worst enemy. Instead of having a singular voice that gets out there and really stands up and and tries to tap into where those resources and that funding might exist. You know, Rob. Rob makes a good point, but I think we may be seeing the model turning just a little bit because of all the amazing things that EMS did during the pandemic and continues to do and and some of the changes in focus and the payers really beginning to realize some other issues. Money is being allocated. Money is finally beginning to flow. You've got, even on the fee-for-service side, so many states are changing their uh, Medicaid rules to have the reimbursement in parity with Medicare. Medicare cost reporting is, is, is going on and maybe that's going to yield some fruit. But we've got commercial payers that are willing to pay more. But what's what we're really seeing is communities stepping up. I just had a conversation this morning with a community in Michigan and they said, you know, we really got to fix our EMS issue and the provider is really failing. And I said, you know, the days of subsidy free 10-minute 90% reliability response times with an all ALS provider are over. If you want that level of service, which you don't need, by the way, but if you want that level of service, you're going to start writing checks. And you can either write a check to, to provider type A, you can write a check to provider type B, you can subsidize the fire department, but it's going to cost you money. And, you know, Linda Fredrickson from AIM High, and, and she's with Medic in Iowa, just helped lead a process in Iowa to have EMS designated as an essential service. Great. Everybody thinks that's the, the golden goose. But the problem is when you do that, now you've got to get the funding to, to fund the essential service. And um, uh, people are afraid for some reason to go to the community and put something on the ballot that says, hey, we need a point zero one millage on your tax parcel to fund EMS appropriately. 
And in virtually every case that that has happened, the voters have overwhelmingly passed it. Stop being afraid to ask for funding to stabilize your system. Another recent story, Matt, uh, up there in Fort Wayne, uh, Joel Benz, good friend of ours, uh, said, you know, I've got a, I've got enough money for the moment, but you're going to have to start poning up pretty soon. And he said this to city council and, you know, subsidies are are necessary to, to maintain EMS life support. Rob, I just want to pick up on what you said a minute ago or two. I'm, I'm delighted that you've been wonderfully consistent in your answers because I don't know whether you did this, Matt, but of course, when Rob was recruited, it was very, very public, very open source. Uh, I watched all of Rob's interviews on YouTube, um, which, which is, which is a fantastic, um, transparent way of, of doing business. And, you know, I was impressed with your answers then, Rob, and now you, 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 you're sticking to your guns. And so, you know, continue to do that representation this national association because you know who wants to have their job interview broadcast to the nations you did um, that's that's an, perhaps that's another another podcast for another day but uh, um good good on you sir so moving on um work-life balance is a real thing is it work-life balance is absolutely critical for us as we look at what this industry is going to look like um you know as you you talk to the folks that are out there especially as we went through the COVID 19 pandemic burnout is a real thing. You know, people are looking to spend time with their families. They're looking to um, make sure that they're staying healthy and active and, and doing other things beyond just the industry. Um, you know, as we looked at in the survey here, you know, 50% of the people um, that, that said that they were going to be, or they were looking to leave the profession said they were leaving because of work-life balance. Um, and the days of us just mandating overtime and pushing people to come in, um, you know, folks would rather, uh, focus on the ability to have a good work experience um, than, than solely on paying benefits. And they're both so critical, right? You can't take one without the other. Um, but especially in our industry where we do struggle with the pay, what we can affect is the culture and we can affect their work-life balance and we can affect how they feel. And so it, it's so important for us to make sure that we do those things, that we have all the processes in place for employee engagement, for staff engagement, um, and that when they want their time off, we give them their time off. Because if we don't do that, they're just going to leave the organization and then we're going to have an even bigger trouble. So uh, it, it absolutely is critical that we as leaders recognize that the workforce has changed. Um, our workforce went through a traumatic event over the past few years, um, and their priorities are different than what we may have experienced decades ago as when we entered the profession. Our final point, Matt, that uh, that you made in the article, but obviously extrapolating from the survey, is this is a long-term challenge that needs long-term solutions. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we it took us 10 years to get to the point of absolute crisis, but we saw it coming for 12 years, right? So, so it, it shouldn't really surprise anybody. Um, and we need to both stop the hemorrhaging, but also figure out the blood transfusion. Um, stopping hemorrhaging is happening with system redesign, with changing deployment methodologies from all ALS to tiered deployment to really looking at response times critically and saying, you know, probably 50% or more of the quote-unquote 911 calls that EMS gets aren't a time-critical emergency and don't need an 8, 10, 12-minute response time. Um, if we can be real about the clinical needs of the patients that we're responding to, and use BLS when it's appropriate to use BLS, decompress the system by having more BLS units in the street. If we have realistic and clinically responsible response times that says, you know, the 
the splinter in the finger probably within the hour is fine for us to get there, even though they called 911, just set that expectation with the caller. Um, we can do the short-term solution, but as we've talked about throughout this this podcast and the, and the radio show, is we need to fundamentally change the payment model so that we are paid for the care that we provide, paid for the cost of readiness without any argument from some of the payers because some patients need a 10-minute response time or less. Um, but we need to start laying that foundation now and participating in things like EMS on the Hill Day and the advocacy so that we can change federal and state legislation and funding streams and work with the commercial payers to pay us for availability and pay us for patient navigation, not just per transport. Wonderful. I'm going to come in now with another quick uh, ad now to say that uh, one of the things that Pam Lane and the team at NAMT are doing with uh, NAMT Radio is to carefully curate the content. And so, Matt, you mentioned advocacy. You mentioned EMS on the Hill. All you need to do is rewind one episode to episode two, and you can hear Chris Way and Juan Cardona talking about advocacy and breaking down the absolute detail of what's coming up on EMS on the Hill. So it's all connected. It's all interlocking. It's all overlapping. Thank you, everybody, for talking about the survey. Matt, before you have to go, um, I want to talk about what I always call the Ricky Bobby rule in EMS, right? It's you know, if you're not first, you're last. If you get there quickly, it's a win. If the patient, if the patient survives, then you might be lucky. But talk about red lights and sirens, and particularly when I spoke to you last, you just had your big uh, blizzard, snowstorm, ice storm uh, in your sort of metroplex area. You told everybody you were switching the lights and sirens off, made sense, safety. You told me that the media went, yeah, that's a good idea, actually. A, did you put them back on? And B, were there any? adverse or any outcomes that you want to talk about? Yeah. So thanks for asking the question, Rob. We went about five days, five, four and a half days uh, with complete suspension of lights and siren response because we just couldn't get anywhere. It was icy and it was too dangerous. And you know, even if we had uh, a hot response, we weren't going to go over 10 miles an hour. It just really didn't matter. Um, the med- office medical director has done reviews on a number of occasions um, when we had our cyber attack and had a system meltdown. And we know of no adverse outcomes that came from a cold response to a chest pain patient, and it took us 15 minutes to get there instead of 10, or 20 minutes to get there instead of 15. Um, No chance, we weren't, and I use this term a lot, and a lot of people get offended by it, but we weren't stacking bodies like cordwood in front of City Hall because we turned off our lights and sirens. Um, we did turn them back on once the weather conditions got to the point where the field staff said, I feel comfortable responding hot now to certain calls. However, we knew that was short term. Today, literally today, as we are recording this, this radio broadcast, we have implemented a reprioritization in our system that has dramatically reduced the incidents that we respond to hot, um, and we're now tracking that data to say, you know, uh, we went from nearly 75% hot responses to 911 calls to now somewhere less than 40%. And, you know, first day in seems great. I'll tell you that a lot of our field staff, and, and, and I work the truck pretty regularly, and I've seen, and the data shows, because they document it in their patient care report, even when the crews are dispatched hot, if they are close to the scene, if they know they can get there in a reasonable amount of time, they don't turn lights and siren on. I worked a, a street shift, as I said, on Monday, 12-hour shift. We responded to 10 
911 calls, five of them were dispatched hot. In 12 hours, we never turned down our lights and siren. And we responded to the quote unquote hot call, cold, beat the fire department to every call, and nobody died. And we were safer because we didn't go against the traffic. We didn't go through intersections. Um, and it was fine. And I think we need to, to be more reasonable with that. And, and interestingly, all three of us have worked in inner city EMS systems. And uh, I don't know, you guys have done probably done this, but I've been going out in the SUV to go somewhere. An ambulance goes past me, lights and sirens on. We come to the first interchange, lights red, ambulance slows down, I catch up. Goes green, ambulance carries on, hits the next red light, I catch up. Right. We arrive at the right. same time. Yeah. Indeed. Um, Rob, are you are you taking any measures such as this? We're doing a lot of the same things that Matt and MedStar are doing. We're focusing in on really looking at our overall response matrix. The big thing for us is really looking at alternative dispatching, alternative resources besides ambulances, right? So as we, we're not just reducing lights and sirens response, but not even sending ambulances and just sending case managers and resources and mental health professionals out to these scenes and recognizing that, um, they don't always need an ambulance. And so, so we're looking at every single of our determinants and saying, how many of these can we stop sending ambulances to? And how many can we stop using lights and sirens? Because it's such a small fraction of the calls that we go on. Less than 6% of our calls actually end up being um, identified as potentially life-threatening. And so, so we can change the way we do business. Yeah. And Rob, you know, Rob is spot on and, and we all need to do that. And when we did the analysis, it's 2.05%. Of our, of our 390,000 responses that the Office of the Medical Director looked at, 2.05% had received a potentially life-saving intervention. Wow. What do we do with the other 95% of the calls? That's an excellent summary of where we need to get to by knowing that data. And of course, data, as you both know, is my favorite four-letter word. So we need to be able to demonstrate it and use it to good effect in order to affect change. Classic uh, P- Rob podcast ending question. Gentlemen, is there anything I've forgotten to ask or anything you've forgotten to tell me? No. Very good job, Rob. Not for me. Thank you so much for the invitation to, to join you. And it's a, it's a critical situation for us. It's something we got to talk more about and really uh, looking forward to coming together as an industry and coming up with some good solutions for this. Thank you both very much. The 2022 EMS Worker Engagement Survey will be contained in the show notes, as will the article that uh, Rob and Matt penned for EMS One. We have uh, EMS on the Hill coming up on March the 29th and March the 30th in Washington, D.C. Still time to sign on still time to go, still time to be present, and therefore still time to make a difference. Uh, Gentlemen, it's been amazing. What a great chat. Thank you very much, and I hope to have you back sometime soon. Thank you. Thanks, guys. So that was uh, Chief Rob Luckritz and Matt Zabanski from MedStar, and I always love talking to these two gentlemen. Uh, That's all for now with uh, NAMT Radio. Don't forget, if you want to reach out, if you want to pass a comment on, please uh, use email NAMTRadio at naemt.org. Love to hear from you. So that's been episode three. Uh, Looking forward to our next guests, where we're going to talk about the EMS Lighthouse Leadership Project in episode four in a couple of weeks' time. I've been Rob Lawrence, and until next time, thanks for listening, and bye for now.